0: I think that we are actually at the precipice of uh, you know, what some people may dramatically describe as a new world order.
1: I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms...
1: This week, ahead of tomorrow's G20 Summit, a look at the relationship between China and America, as seen through the eyes of a Silicon Valley veteran. I was going to say, in case you asked me to speak Chinese, that my favorite, um,
0: my favorite thing to say in Chinese is, <laughs> which is... Yes, I studied Chinese, but I've like totally forgotten it all now. I apologize. Um it's sort of my it's my party trick these days. but
1: <laughs> Aiden Madigan Curtis has years of experience living and working in China. She was a key player in the manufacture of the first Apple watch, now partner and investor at Eclipse Ventures. I think we're sort of seeing the real birth of two different
0: superpowers um kind of coming to heads about, where we're going to go uh, in the world and sort of both economically and from a policy and a personal freedom's perspective, you know, which regime, if you will, uh, will continue to have, you know, major global influence.
1: It is interesting that we are limiting the chips that we are sending to China, but those chips are made from rare earths and other things that we get from China. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and it's actually, that's a really interesting part of the equation too because it relates to, like, consumer electronics, it relates to medical devices, it relates to automotive parts. Like, so much of what we use to, you know, so much of the backbone of our economy is made out of these parts and pieces that are sourced from these rare earths. Also, not only rare earths, but um, if you think about, for example, the big shift that we're doing towards renewable energy or electric vehicles, um, something like 85% of the world's lithium is processed in China. Uh, It's sourced in other parts of the world, Australia, Chile, also in China, but The processing step, which is dirty and carcinogenic, and not necessarily something we historically have wanted here in this country, um, happens happens over there, and so we are incredibly dependent on China continuing uh, with its lithium processing. With its graph, something like ninety plus percent of the world's um, graphite is processed in China as well. These are you know make up over fifty percent by weight uh, of what. uh, electric vehicle batteries are comprised of, right? So as we and and that's just electric vehicles. We're also trying to make a shift towards um, longer duration energy storage and things like that, so we can better use our renewable resources and get that energy into the grid in a cost efficient way. So a big part of that transition is still highly dependent on China. So whether it's you know the semiconductor and electronic parts, whether it's you know our shift towards uh, a more electric future, there's still a ton of interdependency. Um, and I think actually in that respect, the, the US is a little bit more dependent on China than China is these days on the US. I also think we're seeing China shift its economy, not only, as I mentioned, towards kind of a more consumer-based and internal investment-based, but they've actually really ratcheted down sort of this notion of needing to be an ultra high growth country. Um, they're trying to do some smart deleveraging when it comes to what was going on in the property sector that I was kind of a buzz about. Um and what she was saying in the last party congress, the one that we just had, was that that was okay. You know, he's sort of setting expectations that China will be growing at a slower pace in the coming years and that that is something that both Chinese citizens and the world should expect in the interest of kind of creating a greater China for all um, and being able to navigate the country towards, you know, sustainable growth and um, uh essentially, a GDP per capita by 2035 that would be on par with, um, you know, the world's developed economies.
1: Give me a short-term and a long-term outlook that you see. Again, you know, very short-term, the the two leaders, the American leader and the Chinese leader, will meet uh, at, at at the G20. What's the six-month bet on our relationship with China, and what's maybe the 10-year bet on our relationship with China?
0: That's a great question. The six-month bet is that from a U.S. perspective, it doesn't seem beneficial. Because again, back to my real power politics stance, it doesn't seem super beneficial for us to rock the boat further than it's necessarily been rocked so far. The U.S. is facing a crisis of inflation like we've never seen before. It was demand-driven inflation after COVID um, in terms of the stimulus and, you know, 10 10 years of low interest rates um, and what that did to the ability to kind of have have dollars chasing a scarce amount of goods. Uh, We see the Fed taking action, extreme action these days to to clamp down on that and effectively doing so from a demand side. But there's not much we can do in terms of the supply side of the equation. And, uh, you know, until we see... Unemployment rates actually rising until we see kind of the real economic impacts, and until we see the ability to, for example, manufacture in this country again at a more efficient level, a higher throughput level, leveraging you know technologies that come into play there. Um, we don't necessarily have the capability to get inflation down. So I think we could see some real supply side interactions and that's not even counting energy, which is the other kind of key input. So you know, labor and energy, as well as the ability of how you pull it all together is kind of what creates the price of goods, right? And the price of goods is literally inflation goods and services. So I think that in the US, you know, we don't necessarily benefit from having to redo all of our supply chains in the next six months. And given the significant level of interdependence globally uh it wouldn't be highly beneficial for us to um you know escalate further so i think just in terms of like the u.s motivations there isn't a, a major one to really rock the boat um that said you know there has been a longer term kind of ratcheting of, of the rhetoric around um you know chinese espionage things like that so we'll we'll have to kind of see what happens on that on that front and on the defense front um when it comes to China, uh, you know, she just having solidified his control again for a third term. You know, this is his chance to potentially do a bit of a victory lap, but it's unlikely. I would suspect that um, you know, so immediately there would be a, an escalation, given those other interdependencies that we already talked about. So, um, I think that on the tenure front, that's where things get a lot more interesting the U.S. has committed at this point between the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, hundreds of billions in capital to restructuring our supply chains. Uh, And China has committed to reunifying with Taiwan, right, amongst uh, the other kind of economic shifts that we've mentioned. So I think that the table is set for some very interesting geopolitical dynamics in the next 10 years. Um, But in the next six months, my guess is, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of change and a lot of disruption in these past couple of years. I think we've seen a lot of escalation of tension um, in the last few months. I'm hopeful that the G20 is a chance for everyone to get back together for the first time since COVID, um, sort of take a breath and uh, yeah, think a little bit more long-term, which I, th- I think is where things get a lot more interesting.
1: It's certainly been in both countries' best interest to have a good economic relationship, as you pointed out. You know, prices are low for uh, all American goods as you walk through one of those big box stores, and and it's lifted so many Chinese into the middle class. Um, but the push in America, in particular, is to be ready to do a lot of this on our own. The Chips Act with building, you know, uh, uh, chip factories. At Eclipse, you're looking for companies to help you innovate the way out. I mean, this kind of presupposes that nationalism and a drawback of of globalism is is permanent.
0: Eclipse uh, has been around for the past seven or so years, and the main focus was on digital transformation of physical industries. And the desire came from you know, what we saw, it wasn't just a function of you know, nationalism or anything like that. We saw it in COVID too, this notion that really the industries like manufacturing, supply chain, transportation, logistics, how we manufacture our food too, um, or our pharmaceuticals, you know, where, where in the world we source the raw elements that go into all of these things, that those um, supply chains and the technologies that we leverage to to actually enable those outcomes hadn't been revisited in a very long time. And as I mentioned earlier on, it it didn't necessarily make sense to do so um, when you you could sort of chase that geographically, right? And kind of get a, you know, with a little bit of capex and a smart geographic kind of strategy as a company, you could come up with better throughput um, pretty fast. And that has been making, you know, kind of the most sense for the past 30 years. But we've seen in the last seven or eight years is that that's probably not enough to keep prices low. That's probably not enough. And to really kind of increase productivity, we need to leverage some of these technologies that I'm happy to to share more about um, on the manufacturing side or on the supply chain side or on the transportation side in order to keep up with, um, you know, the desire not to see prices rise and also to kind of build... I would say build back, but it's actually builds different or build better, uh, our domestic capabilities or our
1: near-short capabilities. Well, I guess I think that's my point is without, you know, accusing anyone of being nationalists or anything like that, when you're making a bet as to where to, to invest because you are betting the world is going that direction, when you're betting on increasing American manufacturing and things, that is to some degree a bet on, Well, that's the way this is going to go because logically it would make much more sense to continue to manufacture things in China or Vietnam or wherever because cost of labor is low. They already know how to do all those things. The infrastructure is there. But if you're betting on it, you know, it's a good thing to bet on America, don't get me wrong. But it also kind of says, well, but I think this is the the direction the scale is going to put.
0: I actually think that what we saw was more the direction of what technology was capable of. So um, you know, insofar as labor arbitrage made a lot of sense in terms of cost input to goods, we can see with you know, what, for example, we saw happen in the warehousing automation transition that Amazon fostered, right? This notion that you could actually create a far safer environment for people to work in, to be frank, rather than all sorts of ergonomic, you know, issues or um, other sort of uh, workers, um, you know, health-related challenges. You can have um, robots and automation doing um, some elements of that work that allow the human beings in the loop to be more value-add and kind of move up the value chain, Um I think we're seeing that transition now in terms of what we're capable of with robotics, with software, with AI, into far more reaching um, applications across different industries.
1: So in this case, it's the the labor that we may not necessarily need. What used to require 10 people to do could now be two Americans and a whole lot of robots.
0: I actually think it's about bringing people up the value chain. So. You know, we actually see there being the capability to employ more people in higher value add areas within these industries, especially if we're bringing, um, you know, so we're, we're doing more of those industries here again, right? So to say that, uh, you know, to say that we really believe, um, technology can be leveraged to create higher throughput is also to say that we need people sitting behind the controls, right? Getting skilled in how you actually run an automated manufacturing line, being skilled at drone operation if you're trying to, you know, survey a landscape, being skilled in different ways, in ways that are healthier and um, hopefully really upskilling for people. Um, and so that's the focus uh, in that respect. is to be able to have people do um, more technical roles and roles where they are, um, you know, healthier as a as an
1: outcome. You were at Apple for a number of years and were key with getting the Apple Watch manufactured. Um, do you envision a day in which there's a factory that big in the United States making Apple watches?
0: I do. Yeah, I really do. I think that um, again, you know, to the point of being able to. Leverage modern technologies here. Uh, I think we're really on the precipice of being able to see, and, and I think it's wonderful to see the government take some action and in, um, incentivizing uh, companies to to do that style of manufacturing here onshore, um, overseas. You know, we've seen uh, the Chinese government, since you are talking about China, pour tens of billions of dollars, um, hundreds of billions, depending on what timescale you look at, into um, subsidies and credits uh, for their everything from semiconductor up through assembly uh, manufacturing capabilities so to say that you know it seems very fair for the US to take the same action um, is an understatement i think and uh i think as it becomes really in companies interest to you know leverage some of these technologies that can allow for higher throughput to um, skill their labor in a way that allows for you know happier healthier workers and to be able to you know even you know bringing on shore uh the Inventory, right? The kind of closer you are to your end user, um, the the lower your carbon footprint in terms of like taking things on a trip, sometimes multiple times around the world, um, and the less inventory you necessarily need to stockpile um, as you're trying to figure out and read, you know, the ever changing demand and and um, flavors and tastes of your of your consumers. So um, there are a ton of benefits in terms of um, being closer to your end consumption. Um, I also see companies like Apple and other kind of major global companies having consumers all around the world. So I think it's really about being able to leverage the technology and the capabilities um, just closer to your end consumer, really, no matter where they are.
1: What did you learn about factories and industry with your time at Apple? I mean, obviously, you learned a great deal, but but what big lesson did you pull away from it?
0: I learned how incredibly, you know, it's funny because I wish that I could um, say something about the technology or, you know, so, you know, related to my role in VC, but actually I learned maybe my most important lesson about people and about culture. I think the the biggest takeaway for me is that no matter where you are in the world, people want to feel respected. Um, people want to do work that is of value. And... You know, a lot of my takeaways from the time I spent on those manufacturing floors, whether they were onshore or elsewhere, is that everybody just wants to be proud of what they do. And so, you know, we had to, when we were bringing up um, the manufacturing sites for the Apple Watch, I was specifically involved in the system and package, um, which was a really new process for Apple at the time. That you know, we had a lot of hard work to do in a very short period of time. It involved setting up a whole different manufacturing process. It involved training a number of workers about different manufacturing steps. It involved some really tense moments getting you know yields up from the kind of thing you'd see in a prototype style build to mass production, um, and what it took to sort of rally and motivate those teams, many of whom didn't speak you know the same languages as as some of the people who were on the Apple side. Um, was kind of pretty common from what you'd see anywhere. How do you actually get people to feel proud of what they do? And so a lot of the techniques that um, that made help to make me successful in my role, and I think others were um, appealing to, you know, giving giving everybody a. Strong sense of positive feedback, as well as like some pretty open, honest transparency around data and letting um, the workforce there from engineers to the operators understand what was going on and really working together as a team to do an incredibly hard thing in a very short period of
1: time. That, that is key. I mean, if you're an American company, I mean, yes, Apple is a multinational, but if you're an American company with proprietary uh, uh, devices, It is still important to bring in engineers in the home country in China in on the process because they need to feel valued. And also, they'll probably have some pretty valuable input.
0: Yeah, it's actually funny because, you know, we've spent a lot of today talking about deglobalization and um, it really was a phenomenal experience to see. You know I'm Canadian right and so I was me it was my American counterparts at Apple many of whom are actually also from many other countries in the world. Um, it was you know a lot of the Chinese uh, both operators as well as the staff that were you know the owners of the the plants that we were manufacturing and even a number of, of Taiwanese engin- engineers as well who were involved in in the company that we were working with so it was very much like United, colors of Benetton, there, you know, all of us sort of coming together to make this work. And in, in some respects, it is, it's is—it's a little sad or scary to think about deglobalization um, because there are tremendous uh, benefits that you get from learning the humanity of each other when you're working hand in hand to get something incredibly difficult and incredibly rewarding done.
1: When you watch politicians talk about America first or or building chip factories in America, it makes logical sense, I mean, you know, especially when it comes to things that we might be vulnerable um, if other countries were to pull away. On the other hand, it's also just as worthwhile and laudable to talk about globalization. And, you know, if we could all just get along here, we'd all benefit.
0: Yeah, It was very fortunate that it was sort of in everyone's interest these past several decades. Um, You know, the U.S. for a very long time had a policy of, you know, this notion of mutually assured economic destruction, right, with China. And it was a big part of U.S. foreign policy to encourage globalization for exactly the reasons that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, what is that thing about no— no two countries who have McDonald's ever fight. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wish that were true. I think we've seen that. That's unfortunately, true, yes, you're unfortunately. Right. Um, but it has been amazing to watch what the you know I talked about being hand in hand, if you will. Um, sometimes literally like hands on all the same stuff, you know, in these overseas factories. It's also about social media. It's also about you know what what we see over instagram or tiktok or twitter the ability to actually share cultures and communicate and laugh at the same jokes um you doesn't you don't even need to speak the same language often to find something amusing and it's kind of hilarious how humanity is so similar you know human nature and what we find funny or adorable is you know is really a tie that binds uh So, yeah, you know, there is that sort of like headline rhetoric going on right now. Um, I think there's a lot to that. Uh, There's a lot of politics to it. Um, But at the end of the day, there is also a reality to uh, the need for our ability to manufacture medical devices and build data centers that power the, you know, cloud compute that is sort of the backbone of a lot of the way that we communicate, the way that we'll get this podcast out to your audience that, you know, there's just so much between the, you know, the phones that we use in our hands, which everybody always thinks about and talks about to the PCs that we do our work on to really more of that data center infrastructure to everything in between, you know, the parts that go into our vehicles, our jets, our, you know, our medical devices that we absolutely have to be able to, you know ensure that our economy can survive. So I think it's smart to try and do a bit more of an analytical review around what capabilities we need to be sure that we have and that hasn't necessarily been front and center in the last 30 years. Um, but I the optimist in me hopes that it doesn't mean a complete shift away to a you know more much more um Protectionist, uh, holy sort of self Well, that goes back to my question about what do you
1: predict 10 years from now? More globalization, less global. Do we all pull back into our respective countries and try to go on our own?
0: Yeah, I really think, as I've mentioned, the table is set for what could be a very pessimistic worldview in the next 10 years. Um, and I'm personally pretty torn on how I think it will play out. Um, like so many things, there's a bit of a randomness to it, you know, what actually, the table could be set for um, for really either direction, uh, a compounding of the benefits that we've seen in terms of globalization. But the tenuousness of, you know, kind of what we've realized between COVID and the last couple of years of the need to kind of be more nationalistic in our approach to our domestic industry is causing, I think, a very rational response and that does escalate tension. And that does mean that kind of any, yeah, I think World War I was started by like a crazy person, right? With a random right. shot, right? So it's, it kind of is like, well, what's going to happen to stir the pot? And when tensions are high on both sides, very little things can create very outsized, unfortunate impact. So, you know, sort of cross my fingers, hope that, you know, we end up on the right side of history in that respect. But I think there's a decent chance that, um, you know, the way that the chips are stacked, we end up in a much more tenuous place than we have been the last several decades.
1: Aidan madigan Curtis, partner and early-stage investor at Eclipse Ventures. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes at at PressHereTV.com.